0: Let's um, take your notebooks and turn them over to the back because I want to remind you each time we get together of what it is that we are all about and what we're doing and what we're hoping to accomplish at Grace Bible Church with the the men in the church in particular. Um, We're going to walk through those six disciplines. Eric, you are a good man. (laughs) I don't care what these guys say about you when you're not around. (laughs) (laughs) You're right.
1: right. You know what they say in Seattle? Coffee is the most important meal of the day. The most important (laughs)
0: meal of the day, that's right. Breakfast of champions. Um, And and by the way, these, these, uh, especially the front-end disciplines here are, uh, this is what you want to be about. When you're sitting with another guy and you're talking to him and he's just his spiritual world's upside down. He doesn't know why he's in the funk he's in. He, things aren't going well in his marriage. Um, he's he's just seems to be really dry spiritually. I mean, look, this is this isn't rocket science. You just now you know what to start. With. Let's talk about your heart. What are you doing with God's word and your heart? What what is your heart like when you interact with God's word? What are you thinking about? What are you aiming for as you read God's word? Are you reading God's word? And so you're starting right at the very foundational level because that's where God revealed himself most clearly to us is through his word, and he intended, and we've seen this as we've done survey you know, through the scripture, we've looked at specific Bible passages, that his intent is that your heart would come into contact with his word which reveals him, Right? And that becomes the primary basis of your Christian life. Because we are are changed by Christ, saved, we are forgiven, we are given a new heart. It is our job in the Gospel now to feed that new heart from His Word, right? Um, Just like you can feed your flesh with all kinds of worldly things, and you will reap the consequences of it, you must feed your new heart with the Word of God. And you will reap the consequences for it. And there will be blessing in your life. Um, So every man who starts there and is focused on his heart and is paying attention to his heart will be overflowing with the God of the Scripture over time. And that man has a valuable and irreplaceable place in the body of Christ for the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That man has something to say to people. Who's been feasting on God in his word? That guy has something to say to people. That guy's helpful. That guy's useful. The guy who's been in a spiritual desert because he doesn't really read his Bible and he's not really therefore meeting with God in his word. He, what, what does that guy have to say? Except regurgitated things from maybe months, years ago, or, or you know, little uh, mantras that the church has. Um, you don't want that. You don't want to be that kind of man. Um, for God's sake, for your own heart's sake, you need to be a different kind of man. Um, the kind of man who shepherds his heart to bring it to the Word of God. Secondly then, if you're not going to play leapfrog over your heart, the next thing you can't play leapfrog over is your your house. The people you live with. You need to be making an impact there. That's the place where you live. It's a brilliant strategy God had that you would actually live with people. And that your your heart for God would just give off this aroma to them, and you would make this impact on who they are. Um, And you are making an impact in your home. Right now, today, with the people you live with, you are making an impact. I know that the same can be said of, of men in regards to their wives. You are leading your wife all of the time. It just depends on how you're leading your wife. And some of us take an absent leadership and some taking intentional leadership but the point is is you are making an aroma come off of you in your home and who you live with Uh, it's just are you doing it the right way are you trying to draw them into the gospel bring them into uh, the Word of God so that they can meet with the God of the Word if you're not playing leapfrog over your heart and you're not playing leapfrog over those household relationships then you are a, a, a pretty significant weapon in the hand of God to minister to people in the third discipline discipline three on the ministry you should run as far and as wide and as deep and as long as you can in the body of Christ and beyond the body of Christ because you're shepherding your heart you're taking care of the people that you live with and you are a man of integrity you are what you are wherever you are you're not one thing in private and another thing you portray to your family and then something else that you portray to the church you are the same man everywhere you go and you have something to contribute and have a powerful part in the gospel. Those first three disciplines are summed up, in a sense, by the fourth discipline. And when we look at the qualifications, the qualifications primarily of deacon, um, that's what we look at in build. we want to set those qualifications up for you. I encourage you, even now, even though we're not talking about the deacon qualifications um, on the Saturdays when we're together yet, I encourage you to go ahead and read them and in First Timothy three, and and set them out in front of you, and start thinking, and start asking God, which which of these qualifications are the ones that um, you've given evidence of your grace in my life, that, that you're working on these things, and which ones I are am I neglecting that I really need to be working on? Um, but all those qualifications basically can be broken down into what kind of a man is he with his heart, what kind of a man is he in his home, and what kind of a man is he just out in among people. Um, Discipline five is a catch-all category for us, called the biblical, theological, practical. Meaning that anytime something biblical, a biblical subject or concern comes up, a theological challenge, a, a practical ministry issue comes up, we're just going to address it here because we need to be men who can handle those things and not ignore them. And uh, for the sake of the body, um, so we're just going to handle whatever biblical issue or theological issue or practical ministry issue comes up. And then lastly, discipline six. Um, These leadership disciplines would work, I would think, for any church, but you're at Grace Bible Church, and we have a specific biblical vision that we want to set before our eyes. That's our vision, and that's what we mean. We set our eyes on these biblical realities of the glory of God, the cross of Jesus Christ, and transformed life by the Holy Spirit, and we have a gospel purpose where we draw in, build up, and send out for the sake of the gospel. And so we want our leadership all uniting their heart, their household, and their ministry, all to rush towards that biblical vision and that gospel purpose. So there you have it. That's what buildeth. And um, it's what we want you to rally around and we're calling you to these things and saying, let's unite around these things and let's be the kind of men that these disciplines call us to be. And. I want to encourage you to take this to the, the guys in your small group, the, the people that you know. Start with, when you sit down and you talk with a guy and you're just hanging out, some point in the conversation he's to come up. Tell me about how you're doing with your heart. How's your heart these days? And, and tell me about your time in the Word. This is just what we need to be bleeding when we get cut. And this is what just comes out of us when we're talking in our sleep. Because these are the things that matter to God and these are the things that will make this church strong through you. Right? Alright, with that in mind... If you need to get up and get coffee, will you please do it? And whoever gets up and gets coffee, will you get me one? (coughs) All right, and then let's take a look at your uh, quote, too, for today. And you can go ahead and get out your uh, worksheet as well. And we'll just get ready to go here. Oh, and a big thanks this morning. Let's see if we can read. Donuts. On behalf, oh, let's see, where, did Tom bring those? Tom, did you bring the donuts? Yeah. Tom Trout brought the donuts. We have the egg casserole because of Bob's wife, Marilyn, right? Okay. And we had the, the little Chick fil A things. Eric, did you bring those? Did you go all the way over to the 60 and whatever to get those?
2: No, um, remember you.
0: Oh, a third? Or, oh, yeah, that's right. There's one up there. That was my first good experience with Chick-fil-A. I know I'm I'm an, I'm an odd bird, but I everybody else like I think if you're a Christian, isn't that like the fourth member of the Trinity Chick-fil-A? <laughs> isn't that what they say? Yeah, they're really good. They're really yeah. Good. But I for whatever reason I just had bad experience. But that was a good experience. Whatever that is, that is good. So that's excellent. So thank you for that. And and you other uh, if any of your wives or other significant others have volunteered to um, bring food. Um, we'll make sure Cass gets them on the list to to bring some food. So it's I'll really a very time. That's perfect. You're fine. Alright, let's take a look at your um, quote. It's not a long one. I came across this a couple years ago, maybe two years ago. Um, and did um, one. Um, one. You want another? Uh, keep it
3: good right here. <laughs> you <laughs>
0: Oh, we have another box of donuts. Okay, thank you so much. for. We don't want to miss anybody's contribution. Um, I came across this quote um, from Paul Tripp. Paul Tripp writes some great stuff on just how to be the body of Christ together. Some biblical counseling um, types of things. His brother, Ted Tripp, writes some good stuff on parenting. Has Paul written any stuff on parenting? He's come out with so much.
4: He's he's like a book a month right now. He's not up on what he's written maybe the last 18 months, but he's come
0: out with a lot of resources. Probably the one that well, I know the one I'm most familiar with is Instruments in a Redeemer's Hand. In fact, we had a quote from there a couple weeks ago. Um, But anyway, I I highly recommend him as a a guy to read. Um, But he says this, makes an interesting connection between theology and the heart. He says, your theology will not always move you in the direction of obedience. Now that might really shock you because we just reflexively think, well, right theology will always move me in the right direction. But there's something that's guiding the whole ship and it's your heart. Your theology will not always move you in the direction of obedience because your use of theology, thank you very much, is governed by the condition of your heart your use of theology is governed by the condition of your heart. You can have all of the right theology, but if your heart is not right with God, what you do with that theology is going to be very suspect. Um, so, uh, this just puts the emphasis back again that, okay, be the thing that every man in the church needs to be concerned about first and most is that, am I, my, is my heart pure? Am I, am I seeking God in His Word? Etc., the the thing that you'll find that will get guys in trouble in churches is there becomes a need in the churches to teach Bible, lead Bible studies, teach theology, teach Sunday school class, and guys lunge for that opportunity. And when they do, oftentimes they're not thinking about the condition of their heart. And so what they do with that Bible and what they do with that theology and what they do when they teach Now you have to really, now you might find yourself in a situation where there's a big problem being created because the heart that is governing that use of scripture and that use of theology is not in a good place. And so this is where you always must start with the heart. The heart first. Shepherd your heart and theology will come. And we've tried to even, to um, the degree that we can, we've even tried to program what our leadership development ministry looks like after that. Build Primarily addresses your heart. Be a man of God um, from your heart and pursue <coughs> God in His Word. Take care of your household relationships and care for people with the gospel. Yes, do that. But the heart, the heart, the heart. H3, which um, a guy in our church goes to after he's completed build, if he wants to, can. Um, now we're focusing mostly on theology. We haven't graduated from the heart. In H3, because you never graduate from the heart, right? You're never graduating from taking care of your heart. But you, in H3, Smed prob- primarily works through systematic theology um, over the course of a year. They meet every week. And they also learn how to handle a passage of Scripture for the purpose of teaching it or preaching it. And so every single guy in it picks a passage, and over the course of a year, he gets a chance to work week after week after week on his passage. And by the end of the year, each of the guys gets up and they teach 20-minute message. 20 minutes, is that right, Eric? Okay. Yeah. And it's a, um, it's a very um, good thing. And, and Smed keeps injecting the heart into it all the time as well. So, but theology needs to come once a man has learned how to care for his heart well. So we want to make sure we get that in the right order. With that in mind, as we get started this morning, we need to pray, don't we? And ask God to help our hearts get in the right place, and and, uh, we'll bring our hearts before his word. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this um, new day, and thank you for these precious men. Lord, what a a gift from you, and what an encouragement to my own heart to see what you are doing in this body, that you would raise up so many men to be interested in this, and to remain committed to it week after week. Um, And Lord, we... Our our heart's desire this morning individually and together is that we would just meet with you as we open your word. And so, Father, I pray that you would um, help me as the one who will kind of lead us through this. I pray, Lord, that you'll help me to um, see and reveal what is in your word and that you'll have my brothers help me and that as a result of our time together, Lord, we will rejoice in what we saw concerning you and what you're revealing specifically about um, your heart for the household, uh, for the home. And so, God, I pray for these men, that they would be men who would not play leapfrog over their hearts. And I pray, Lord, that we would not be men who would play leapfrog over our household relationships. And that you would turn us into men who would run loose into the body and even beyond the body to care for people at the heart level. And... Um, to be concerned about people's relationships in their homes, and um, that we would bring the one and true only answer to every heart problem and every relational problem, and that is the good news of Jesus Christ, who bled and died to take away sin, and who bled and died to give a new heart. And so, God, we um, are mindful of Him this morning. We want this to be an act of worship of Him, and we want this to be great fellowship together. So be with us and guide us, humble us, and exalt your word in our midst so that we see you better. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, let's talk about the home. We got your uh, worksheet there. What we're going to do is we're going to do a biblical survey of home life. We did this twice with the heart, right? We kind of just worked through the Bible and just saw what what does the Bible say about the heart? Now we're going to do the same thing with the home. We're going to try to get a, um, we're trying to gain a, a, a sense of uh, what does God think about the household? What does he think about household relationships? What does God say to fathers and their children? What does he say to one generation and the way that they should be concerned about the next generation, uh, etc.? And what we're going to do is we've got nine different categories here that we'll work through um, that will help us to see God's heart for household relationships. Within each of the nine categories, where it's possible to do so, I I try to walk through all of the Bibles. So, for instance, in number one, you're going to see that we're going to start from Exodus, and we're going to end up in the New Testament in 1 Timothy. Now, I don't do that, obviously, in number two, because we're looking at an example of um, in the Old Testament of a man who grasped God's heart. But there's a reason for doing this, and I want you to understand this. What we're doing when we look at Scripture to gain a sense of God's heart is we don't just go to the Old Testament and find great passages on the household and there are some really good ones and then stop and then draw all kinds of application from that because there's been more that's been written too. Scripture progressed in its revelation, in its being given by God. And so what we want to do is we want to look at what he gave early on, but we also want to add to it what he gave later and later and later. And that's how we're going to work through even the, the Psalms. We're going to go into the prophets, and then we're going to go to Jesus, and then we're going to go to the apostles. So that we get a, a full sense of what God's heart is, and especially in regards to Mosaic law, as Christians, we're not under Mosaic law. We don't obey Honor your father and your mother because God gave it at Sinai. We obey it because Jesus, for his purposes of regulating his followers, he grabbed that one along with many others, and he pulled it under him and under his blood at the cross, and we obey it because Jesus said it. And so we want to make sure, that doesn't mean it has no value in Mosaic Law, it reveals God's heart, all of Scripture's revelation. And all Scripture is profitable. And all Scripture in the Old Testament provides examples. But when it comes to us understanding what to do in regards to our household relationships, we want to obey for the right reasons under Christ. We want to exalt Christ. He's greater than Mosaic law. And so this is why we walk through progressively. And I want to encourage you guys, as you're handling Scripture, to make sure that when you're grabbing something in the Old Testament that you give thought to what comes in the pages afterwards. Okay. And it, it's, it's important too that if you're in the New Testament and you're grabbing a principle, there's nothing wrong with looking at what was said before it <laughs> and putting it in a line of progressive revelation and understanding it. Um, so this is a practice that we're trying to do all the time. So let's go back to the Ten Commandments. We'll start there. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. We want to start with um, the first category to consider, number one, the relationship between the heart and and household relationships. We want to see what God is revealing in Scripture in the relationship between the heart and household relationships. And the fifth commandment is in verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Very specifically, ties it to um, uh, Israel. He's talking about He ties the the honoring of the father and the mother to a a nation that is going to get a specific piece of real estate. Um, And it's tied. How how the children respond to their fathers and their mothers, how they do on that real estate, is uh, determined by their household relationship. So God has very specific ideas. He has very specific expectations for the basic foundational Relationship And boy, is it helpful when dads are honorable men. It makes it easy for children to honor honorable men. Um, it's like whenever you see in the Bible, it says that something about trusting God. One of the first things you should conclude is God is trustworthy. What's really the point of this in telling a man to trust God is that God is trustworthy. See, the command is even about God. So when a command is given here to a a child to honor a mother or a father, that means dads, you better be honorable. Make it easy for your kids. Um, And so that's the point of what he's after. Now let's go to um, Deuteronomy chapter 4. Israel wanders through the wilderness. They don't get to go in right away. They have to wait 40 years until that generation dies off that would not trust God and that kept complaining And so now we're talking to those kids who were told originally to honor the Lord. And Moses is now reteaching them the law prior to going into um, the promised land. Deuteronomy 4, verse 9. Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and the. Do not depart from your heart all the days of your life. That's discipline one, right? Keep your soul diligently. But it's tied at the end of verse 9 with discipline two. Make them known to your sons and your grandsons. Even verse 10, remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth. And that they may teach their children. So when God even gave the covenant at, um, in the wilderness, they, His intent was that, look, you got a generational concern, guys. Make them known to your children. This follows closely on the heels of caring for your own soul. Care for your own soul. Tell it to your kids. That's what we're seeing in God's heart. Let's go to Deuteronomy 6. You're very familiar with this passage. This is called the Shema, um, from the Hebrew word to hear, to listen, to obey. Hear, O Israel, verse 4. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, just pause for a second. If somebody comes to you and they say, um, well, really, Jesus was about love uh, and, and the law wasn't. What would you say? Hmm. if somebody tried to draw a distinction between love and say, well, love is really a New Testament idea, what would you say?
2: Asking, you could just say, prophets,
0: right? yeah, I mean, you can, you can come right to the Old Testament. Watch for people who try to drive wedges between the Testaments on stuff like love and grace and things like that, um, especially the attributes that are, are tied very closely to the nature of God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Here's discipline one. And with all your soul and with all your might. And these words, verse six, which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart. The words of God, your heart, coming into contact with one another. Discipline one. Now, how does he, what does he say next? Verse seven. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, And they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Everything you do in your house, from sleeping to laying down to sleep, from getting up from sleep to just walking, just talking in the way, as you leave your house and you're headed out into the day, there's the word of God as you come home to your house. There's the word of God. Your household, Israel, is dominated by your concern for the word of God. Okay? inseparable connection. That followed right on the heels of love the Lord your God with all your heart. So discipline one and discipline two are inseparable. Let's go to chapter seven of Deuteronomy. Seven, verses one to five. Um, We'll take a look at um, verses three and four specifically. He's giving warning about the is it the seven nations there? Yeah, seven nations greater and stronger than you. When you get there, defeat them. Utterly destroy them. Don't leave one left. Verse 3, Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Why? Because they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. <clears throat> god's concern with the next generation is that they follow Him, and that they are not turned away from Him, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and He will quickly destroy you. So, why no intermarrying? Because sons and daughters get their hearts turned away from God when they get into a marriage relationship with somebody who has another God. And that was to be the burden that the fathers felt. I'm concerned for my children that they follow God. Israel was to feel that the fathers and the mothers of Israel were to shepherd their children in such a way that their children would want to follow God and that they would not want to abandon God. And part of that meant don't let them marry other people outside who have other gods. Now let's go to Psalm 78. Psalm 78, 1 to 8. Verse 1. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. This is from Asaph. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Now I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known. How did we know them? Our fathers told us. Our fathers told us. And we will not conceal them from their children. But we will tell, even to the generation to come, the praises of the Lord. And his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob. And he appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers, that they should teach them to their children. We just saw that, didn't we? That the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, and that they may arise and tell them to their children, that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. What's the main concern? Next generation, know God, know how how trustworthy he is, know how, how, how he is such a confidant that you can put your confidence in him and, and not be like their fathers, verse 8, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its what? Heart, and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Here is another example of the the inseparable connection between what I do with my heart and the impact it makes on the next generation. Um, God is making that clear. Let's go Should Did you read
2: that last phrase from your translation one more time?
0: um, The last verse? Yeah. And not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. What does yours say?
2: I've got the ESV and it's Generation
0: whose heart was not steadfast. Yeah, the the side margin says a heart that uh, did not put right its heart, and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Yeah. Um. Let's let's move towards um, Malachi. That's right. I said Malachi. Malachi is easy though, right? You just go to Matthew and what? Put in reverse. Yeah. Let's go to Malachi, one of the prophets. Malachi four, verses one to six. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. <clears throat> and the and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you, who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in, in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servants, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. For behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Wow. What's being said here? God's way of preparing his people for his coming it included making sure that the household relationships were strong like they were supposed to be right hope some of you guys out over there um, God's concern in that his people being ready to receive him are are making sure that the fathers of hearts and the fathers of their sons and daughters are connecting that relationships are right that they're sincere that they're the way they're supposed to be um.
4: You know, Scott, yeah, Scott, I uh, Sometime earlier this year when I was studying, the, I made a note myself for those verses, um, I just wrote down, God will not bless dis- a disobedient life, and, and I was pondering my relationship with my kids and my grandkids, and uh, see how God interacted with his chosen people.
0: Yeah. In fact, when you go to... uh, In fact, let's go to Luke. Go to Luke 1. I don't have this one. Oh, that's there on the side for you, in parentheses. Go to Luke 1, 16. This is the angel talking to the father of John the Baptist, Zacharias. And he says, He will turn the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So John the Baptist's ministry, um, who Jesus says, if you will accept, is Elijah. His job was to not miss the household relationships in Israel at the time when he came. And that was to help prepare people for a Messiah, so God has this. If anything, we're concluding here is God has this inseparable relationship between the heart and the home, and these things all sting very tightly together. Let's go to uh, Ephesians six. Um, again, we've already looked at this. One again. We're going to look at it again under Christ in the church from the Apostle Paul to us. Ephesians six, verse one. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. It's a repeat. It's brought under the, the the authority of Christ. And so what should be thought of as the church is teaching this is that children need to be taught to shepherd their hearts in such a way in the gospel so as to be prepared to obey their parents. Children... Shepherd your heart in such a way that you are able to obey your parents. And fathers and mothers, shepherd your heart in such a way so that you, verse 4, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers, shepherd your hearts in such a way so as to not completely frustrate your children. So that you're that kind of a man who would keep your children from that kind of being... um, exasperated and now let's go to 1st Timothy chapter 3
3: Scott? Yes sir I was just wondering would you say that the reason that Paul repeats the promise here is he would you say he's making some kind of direct application or he's just trying to show more of the heart of God and just go into the commandment a little more detail
0: that's a great question, and I'm not sure I have a um, a very good answer for it. There's all kinds of um, issues tied in with the with the repeat in verse three, um, because Paul um, changes it a little bit, because um, he changes it to the earth rather than the land, in terms of a specific place. Um, and I think he's just showing that the heart of God is that there is long term blessing that comes there was for Israel if they came into the land if they paid attention to this command and all of the commands um, in love for God there was blessing from God and he's repeating it that it's not any different God hasn't changed in terms of how he's blessing it'll go well with you if you live this way as a Christian family
3: and could could it also be maybe that um it, it, he's saying that it has to do with keeping family ties together and like strengthening communities and that sort of thing too. or
0: well, I, well specifically here is, is primarily rooted in the family right. Um, and, and there's probably general principles that are true for the Christian family as, or a Christian community as a whole. Hmm. When they're obedient, there's blessing as well. Cool. But uh, specifically here it's for his, his, uh, for the family. Good question. 1 Timothy 3. Elder qualifications. We're going all the way from Mount Sinai to the church and the leadership of the church. It's a trustworthy statement. Verse 1, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's the office of the elder, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife relationship there uh, with the house. Temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. And here we go. He must be one who manages his own household well. After looking at the survey of what we've seen, we should go, duh, right? I mean, clearly, how could you not? If you're gonna be a part of what God's doing in the world, especially in the church, how could you not be concerned about your household? This is very near and dear to the heart of God. (laughs) Keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? In other words, if he plays leapfrog over his house, why on earth would you put him in charge of the church? If he doesn't know how to shepherd this little flock, he doesn't know how to shepherd the big flock. If he's not faithful in the little things, he's not going to be faithful in the big things. And so there you see the relationship between the heart and the household. God's very concerned to pull them all together and keep them very tight. Number two. Let's look at an Old Testament example of a man who grasped God's heart for the family and the home. Let's go to Joshua 24. Joshua 24. And we'll look specifically at verses 14 and 15, but I encourage you to read all of 14 to 28. It's a very interesting dialogue that Joshua has with Israel. Um, Okay, now, keep in mind, where's this at? Joshua has led them into the Promised Land. They're in the Promised Land. And what he is saying to them... Let's just read verses 14 and 15. Now, therefore... Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. And look what he says to him. I can't believe he says this to him. Put away the gods which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. You know what he's talking about? Put away the gods that your father, Abraham, served beyond the river. Way back when he was an Amorite or whatever he was. And, And the gods that you served when you were in Egypt... And here they, are. they were in the wilderness for 40 years and now they've come into the land and they've taken possession of it and he's still telling them to what? In fact, the whole Old Testament up to the captivity, they'll be telling them all the time to do what? Put away the gods. Put away Baal. Put away the gods. He says in verse 15, if it's disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, then choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers served which were beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living but as for me and my house we will serve the Lord here's a man who got it he grasped the impact um, an impact was being made on his household because of the conviction that he has that we don't worship other gods we worship the God of Israel we worship Yahweh He made the right spiritual decisions, and in his mind, it was impacting his household. He wasn't just thinking of himself. He wasn't just like, I'm a man of God, and I serve the Lord, and I'm not really thinking about the people around me in my home. No, he is. My household and I, we are together as one on this. Now let's look at some Old Testament failures to grasp God's heart for the family and home. Go to 1 Samuel 2, and as you're going to 1 Samuel 2, I'll tell you about Exodus 4. It's interesting. little side note, you probably wonder, what on earth is that story doing there? But 1 Samuel 2, verse 12. Exodus 4, verses 21 to 26, is God saying to Moses, God has come to Moses, and he said, he appeared to him in the burning bush, and he said, go to Egypt. And talk to Pharaoh, tell him to let my people go. And you know, they have the whole conversation back and forth, uh, uh, not me, God. I've never been eloquent. I can't speak. And who made your tongue? Oh, I did. you did, God. Okay, uh, go. He's on his way, traveling back, and the Lord meets him to put Moses to death before he even gets to Egypt. Why? Because he didn't circumcise his son. So his wife Zipporah circumcises his son, throws the bloody skin at his feet, and says, "You're a bridegroom of blood to me." Thank God for obedient wives. Um, very interesting. <laughs> okay, First uh, Samuel two, verse twelve. We in First Samuel, First Samuel you must think of as a book that is really basically Judges part two. Because First Samuel is not about how we automatically now have a wonderful king who is a godly man, and we are no longer each man running after his own heart, and doing whatever is right in his own eyes. No, no, no. We are still very much in the Judges period. And what you find out at the beginning here is that God is done speaking, has been done speaking with um, Israel. Uh, It says in chapter 3 that a word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. God wasn't revealing himself through the prophets and the seers um, until Samuel. And so the whole point of 1 Samuel is how Samuel comes along and that begins to change. Uh, but, so we're very early on here, and the priest's family is Eli's family, and they are the ones who are taking care of the tabernacle. And now we get to see what Eli is thinking about his sons in this household relationship. Uh, verses 12 and following. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men; They did not know the Lord. Well, that's pretty clear. And the custom of the priests with the people, when any man was offering a sacrifice... The priest's servant would come with the meat while the meat was boiling with a three pronged fork in his hand. Then he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. And thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. That was their practice. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. So there's a practice of what you're supposed to do with the boiled meat, and the sons of Eli say, well, we got our own thing we do. Uh, you haven't even, you're not even done carving this thing up. Give us raw meat now. Give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. Now, if the man who is sacrificing said, verse 16, well, they must surely burn the fat first. Then come and take as much as you desire. Then he would say, no, but you shall give it to me now, and if not, I'll take it by force. This is in the temple or the, the, the tent. Thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. This is Eli's sons who are priests. Now, flip over to verse 22. Now, Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons were doing to Israel, and he heard this. He heard how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So that God's tent is really no different than any of the pagan temples anywhere. You have cult prostitution going on. And he said to them, why do you do such things? The evil things that I hear from all these people. No, my sons, for the report is not good, which I hear the Lord's people circulating. Now, how does that sound to you? yeah it, it sounds i mean you would you would hope that he would be negative about what's happening and he is um, yeah but but he didn't even know did he he had to find out through other people that's the point um, drop down to verse twenty nine what happens then is a a man In verse 27, a man of God comes to Eli to reveal to him what God's thinking about him. And and he says in verse 29, why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I've commanded in my dwelling? In other words, he's holding Eli accountable for the way that his sons disregard the offering in his tent, God's tent. And why do you honor your sons above me? That's key by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore the Lord God of Israel declares, I did, I did indeed say that your house, Eli, and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Wow. Um, God is ending this family's ministry to go to another family to carry out his priestly duties because Eli honored his sons above God. Um, so yeah, he rebuked them in words, but he did nothing about it. Terrible example. Let's go to chapter seven. And and the interesting thing, guys, in First Samuel. First Samuel is one of my favorite books. The interesting thing is, all through the beginning chapters of 1 Samuel, there is this constant contrast between Eli and his sons, and then Samuel. Whenever you get these really bad statements about Eli's sons, right after it, very near in the context is, and and, uh, Samuel kept growing before the Lord. And whenever it says Samuel was growing before the Lord, then you have a bad report of Eli's sons. So there's this huge contrast that's being set up at the beginning of 1 Samuel that Samuel's the guy, he's the one, the priestly duties are coming this way, he's the prophet of God, and Eli's son's done. Now, how did Samuel do once he grew up and he had his own sons? right? Remember what he saw as a boy growing up in the tent with Eli. Remember what he saw. Now let's go to 1 Samuel 7, verses 15 to the end of the chapter and into chapter 8. Now Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He used to go annually on a circuit to Bethel and to Gilgal and Mitzpah, and he judged Israel in these places. And then his return was to Ramah, for his house was there, and there he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Remember, he saw all of this going on in Eli's house. Now the name of the firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, And they were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain, and they took bribes, and they perverted justice. Then, marker on time, because of this kind of stuff going on, then all the elders gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you've grown old, and your sons don't walk like you do. Now, Appoint us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel and they said, give, uh, because they said, give us a king to judge us. Now, the whole thing is of God, right? You know that God's working behind all this. It's to, to have a, a king eventually come. But their desire and their way of going after a king is a sinful desire and a sinful way of going after a king and... What you can't miss here is that Samuel's a part of it. Why? Because his house had become a frustration to the people. And so now they're just like, just give us a king. And they're going after a king all the wrong way because Samuel did not shepherd his family and care for his family. So the nation chafed under Samuel's sons, and an ungodly request for a king came out from that frustration under Samuel's sons. So, I mean, now what we're seeing here is we're seeing the first three disciplines begin to take place. Man is to care for his heart, and that's to be an inseparable connection to his home. And if you don't take care of the home, then what's it do to all the other people? Oh, I mean, it's it's this chain reaction, this domino effect of of either a mess or what, by God's grace. Oh, really good can come, because a man... He's shepherding his heart. He cares for his family, and the impact on the body is good. Right? There's some Old Testament failures. Look at—we uh, won't go to Second Samuel seven. I'll let you remember this. Remember, God, uh, David said, "You know what? What am I doing, living in this palace?" Uh, turn to actually First Kings eleven. You can make your way over there while I tell you about David. Um, you remember, David's like, "I'm sitting in a paneled palace in Jerusalem." And God's people are still dealing in tents, and and God himself is in a tent. This is not right. I'm going to build a house for God. God, And Nathan says, go do all that's on your heart. And then God comes to Nathan and says, "Um, uh, wait a minute, that's what you said to do, Nathan, but I'm going to tell you, I'm I'm pleased that he would even think of such a thing, but it's not going to be him who does it, it's going to be his son who does it. And, And God's promise, God makes his covenant with David, to make his house mighty. That there would never be a son of David that would not sit on the throne. There would always be a king that would come from David's line. So God's commitment is to his household. And then what does David do by chapters 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel? Bathsheba. And God says, well, since you split up a family in a murderous way, wait till you see what's going to happen to your family. So here's a a good, good example of a, of a family to begin with and it just it goes awry very quickly so from um, let's go to 1 Kings 11 and look at his son Solomon uh, verse 1 now King Solomon loved many foreign <coughs> women wait a minute this is a guy who was just dedicating the temple three, day, three chapters before and what Moses said don't let your sons go marry those women and here he is, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord of his, his God, as the heart of David his father had been. Um, verse 2, heart. Verse 3, heart. Verse 4, three times, heart, heart, heart. Um, drop down to verse 9. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. So, not taking care of his relationship with his wife brought great pain to him, but also to the nation. So, what can we conclude here so far? I mean, look, you can't conclude from Scripture that the household isn't important. It absolutely is. In fact, it's a decisive place, relationally speaking. How about number four? Fourth category, the ease at which God is forgotten in the home. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 6 and take a peek at this. Um, actually let's go to Deuteronomy 8 Uh, I'll let you read chapter 6 but you go to 8 verse 10 actually Deuteronomy 8 verse 10 again we're back on the plains of Moab uh, where uh, Moses is reteaching the law to Israel and this is what he's warning them about. Verse 10, when you have eaten and you are satisfied in the land, and you shall, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances <coughs> and his statutes which I am commanding you today. So when you are in a blessed situation and prospering like crazy, that is the time to be concerned. And the way you're going to know if you have forgotten the Lord is you're not obeying Him. Otherwise, verse 12, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and you lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your whole household and all your possessions are growing and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So the very place that God says, take care of your heart, put your words on your heart, take those words and take them into your household, that household that he gives them there and he blesses them with all kinds of stuff in that household, that becomes the very place that forgets God. And they need to be aware of that. So it's very easy to forget God in your home. Number five, the impact that one's faith can have on the entire
2: household.
0: Let's go to the New Testament. Acts chapter 16. I'll let you read Acts 10. Acts 10 is about Cornelius. Uh, One man there made a huge impact, didn't he, on many. But let's go to Acts 16. Paul makes his way uh, on his missionary journey to uh, Philippi. And on the Sabbath, verse 13 of Acts 16, they went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing there would be a place of prayer, and we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. Verse 14, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. I like that, the emphasis on the heart. Heart had to be opened to receive the spoken word from Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Lydia had her heart opened, and the impact made a huge impact on her whole, her whole household. Now, before you get snagged up in why the whole household is, because everybody goes to these passages to talk about, you know, should we baptize, you know, our babies and our family and before you do that, just, just take it at face value what it says in regards to the context we're in. One person's heart was changed, and the whole household changed. And we're going to hold true to what we know that people who are baptized are people who repent and believe. Now, let's prove that in the same chapter by going over to Acts 16, verse 29. You know, a big uprising is caused, and Paul and Silas get thrown in jail and they are there at night uh, singing, and then an earthquake happens. The Roman prisoner, a Roman guard who's guarding over them is drawing a sword ready to kill himself because he's sure all the prisoners are gone, and he's going to die anyway by, his, by the hand of his superiors because he let all his prisoners go. And they say, don't hurt yourself. Verse 29, he called for lights, and he rushed in, and he was trembling with fear. Why? Because he was on the verge of eternity. He knew he was going to die. And he was trembling. He fell down before them. He said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You and your whole household. Everything that was said before, that applies. You believe in your household. You believe, not in your household. You believe in the Lord Jesus. Just teaching a little heresy here in the morning. (laughs) Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You and your whole household will believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and he washed their wounds and immediately he was baptized, he and all of his household who had heard and believed and were saved. And it's even confirmed here, verse 34, he brought them into his house, set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. So there, we kind of solved the baptism thing. But that's not even the point of what we're after here. The point is that... Look at the impact that just one person made on a house. Guys, the impact that you can make on your house because you love the Lord Jesus Christ, because you love his word, that needs to be your desire, that God, if you would be pleased to take and just change my whole household because of, of what you've done in me, I want to be a servant to that end. But there is an attack on the home. Let's go to 2 Timothy. We're getting close, guys. 2 Timothy. Should there be any surprise to us that there would actually be an attack on the household? If there's this kind of a tie between the heart of the man and the household and what God wants to accomplish um, from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, should there be any surprise to us that there's actually an attack on the household? Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self. And by the way, that's the first description. Look at the last one in um, verse 4. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They love themselves, and they love pleasure and not God. That's the bookends on this whole self-centered, absorbed description that Paul gives. And part of that expression of being a lover of self and loving pleasure is right there in verse 3, you're disobedient to parents. Men will be disobedient to parents in the end. in these days that we are in, these last days. Now, men who are like that, verse 5, last part, avoid such men as these. Now watch what they do. What do these kinds of men do? For among them are those who enter into households and they captivate weak women who are weighed down with sins, who are led on by various impulses, always learning women, and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Wow. These kinds of men who are lovers of self find a way into households, and they find women in those households who are not strong women, who are women who are led more by their impulses than they are by truth. Women who, who are weighed down by their sins. They don't know how to deal with their own sin. Paul's telling this to the church. There are women in these homes who, who are always learning. Look, it's not that they're not studying or trying to figure out what to do. They're always learning, but it's a kind of learning that isn't able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Question are the men where's the husband where's the older brother where's the man of god go a page to the right to titus chapter one right after the description of the um, qualifications for the uh, to, to be an overseer an elder verse 10 there's a reason why you need to have qualified men in the church here's the reason for explanation there are many rebellious men empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, that's the Judaizers, they must be silenced, verse 11. Why? Because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Whole families are being upset by these men. This is why you need elders. This is why you need men in a church who, in verse... um, nine can hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict to defend doctrine to advance sound doctrine and to refute error why because there are men who will creep in and they will find their way into households and they'll upset families because if you can ruin families you ruin the integrity of a leadership Of the church and therefore you discredit the whole body and the body's message the attack is on the home the household's best protection is a man who shepherds his heart who then shepherds his family and then shepherds his family into the church under an elder leadership that holds to sound doctrine and refutes error with that sound doctrine Guys, work by God's grace in your life, in the gospel, to equip yourself in such a way, think about this, so that you never leave your wife or your children vulnerable to error. Because that's what's being talked about in Titus 1 and in 2 Timothy 3. Wives and households were vulnerable to false teaching and to error. And they were upset. And they were carried off. And it happened under the noses of men. So guys, uh, take responsibility. Shepherding your heart is everything, guys. Shepherding your heart is everything. Your family needs you to be a man who shepherds your own heart. Seventhly, the family can become an obstacle to the gospel. I'm going to let you um, read through these because I want to finish sooner than later. But in Matthew 10... Is Jesus laying down the hard call that um, look? If your family gets in the way, you come follow me. Um, pick up your cross. In Luke chapter nine, he he has these different calls to discipleship, and some says, "Well, let me bury my father first. I'll follow you." But let me bury my father first. And the idea is, he's not dead yet, your dad. So, in other words, you really just want to stay around in this family to get what you're going to get in terms of inheritance. And Jesus is second. Let the dead bury the dead, all those kinds of comments. Jesus is really driving a, a strong driving point saying the gospel of the kingdom is first and everything else is second, including your family. You come follow me, is the point. The gospel of the kingdom, it invades usually one person in a family. It'll invade one person in a family. And then what happens next with that person is so important. That one person is called to take the gospel to the family, right? If the family starts standing in the way of the gospel, that one member of the family has some really difficult choices to make, but that one must follow Christ and not the family. The family relationships are under the gospel, They're under the gospel. And the way that you safeguard how you look at your relationships with your wife, your children, uh, your roommates, you put all of that under the gospel. You bring yourself, you're a man who's under the gospel, and you do everything you can to bring unbelieving family members under the gospel and, and to bring them under the gospel, to never give your wonderful, precious princess of a wife the impression that she's above the gospel in your mind. You never do that. You always are bringing everybody into the gospel where you are, if at all possible. Work to keep your family in perspective. Jesus had to do this even in Matthew 12 and in the places um, where he is with his family, or he's with his disciples, he's gone days without eating, and his mother and his brothers come and they're looking for him, and Mark's account says it's because they think he's lost his mind. So they're coming to rescue Jesus. And what does Jesus say when he finds out his mother and his brothers are outside? My mother and my brothers are those who do the will of God, who are following me. So he even put, obviously, his kingdom and what he was after above his own earthly family.
2: Can you give us some examples of what that looks like, about bringing everyone that we come into contact with under the gospel? How does that happen when you know, maybe a story or something, how that works for you? Or- how we can be that way when we get home this afternoon or something? Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: well, that's a great question. Um, I mean, number one, the, the best way that you can do that um, is by, just by the way that you live among those people and the way that you talk among those people is that you, you only show them behavior that is under the gospel behavior if you're constantly living and doing things and talking in a way that demonstrates that they would go he says he's under the gospel but none of that behavior is under the gospel well that's a major problem and so then what you're doing as that kind of a person is, is you're, as you're relating to your children and you're relating to your wife or whoever it is you're coming to contact your roommates when you get home today you're now then in everything you're talking about with them you're trying to think through the lens of the gospel I look at all through the gospel and so that if you hear something that is said that really demonstrates like you hear from a roommate, that they say something about um, the way that they responded to a situation at work, and if it was something that was done really truly in a gospel-concerned way, draw attention to that. Put the spotlight on it. Be positive and say, that was gospel living done. I am so encouraged by that. That is evidence of God's grace in your life. How incredible it is just to hear that and be with you and live with you in this house. Let's be that way. Draw attention to the good that you see. Because there's going to be plenty of times when you're going to hear an attitude and you're going to go, brother, can I talk to you for a sec? Honey, um, and you know what, your wife, you want to create an attitude in an environment in your home where your wife's going to be able to go, I can't talk to you about the way you just talked to your daughter. Uh, The way that you talked to her, it wasn't under the gospel. (laughs) My wife helps me with that. I will find sinfully that I will speak to my children and my wife in ways that I would never speak to any of you or your wives or your children. I'm just confessing. Why is it that we are that way that we'll speak to our wives the ways that we do? Um, So model it. Draw attention to where there's really good gospel behavior going on. And um, then also draw attention in a very gracious way Uh, a way that says, I want to come alongside and help and I love you, that that kind of attitude that was just displayed, let's talk about how gospel-centered that was, or not. And just, I mean, but you'd have to live and eat and drink the gospel. A new heart, forgiveness of sin. When you see somebody crushed under the guilt of what they've done in your family or in your household, (coughs) my goodness, you go and you try to get underneath them and bear up with, and say, look, you don't have to be crushed under the weight of your sin. Let's go to the gospel. What, what does the gospel say about who we are? you are forgiven. Now, what is the way that we now need to maybe um, make reconciliation? Work through the consequences of this bad choice you made, whatever. Be somebody who's trying to constantly just bring the gospel to the forefront of everything. Um, maybe that's just a little... With our mic.
1: Um, I listen to a lot of John Piper stuff lately I'm Desiring God and, um, and one of his uh, sermons he, the guy who ministered to the Indians here I've never Yeah. Um like he brought up how he always pretty much never like it's he the most trembling from the Indians when he talk about like just the glory of God mm-hmm. the righteousness of God rather than saying you're going to hell kind of thing and um, so I've been wrestling a lot with um, just kind of being amazed like in the garden how God said, this is me here. You know, I give you everything. Um, you know, take pleasure in me because of my generosity that I want to pour out on you. Just show that appreciation to me by not disobeying me kind of thing. And, um, like, how do you work out with, like, your kids, for example, Um, Or is it even proper to explain to them that we have fallen short of God's glory by not taking up the call to be His image bearers, um, by maintaining His righteous standard, um, and He simply wants to pour out His generosity toward us? Um, Like, is that, I guess, the thing I'm really struggling with is how do you show the depth of sin not being a superficial thing of, you know, don't hurt your brother or don't throw fits against mom? It's that... Um, it's the depth of your sin, rather than the brevity of it, I guess, um, or the superficiality of it. You have forsaken taking pleasure in and enjoying this infinitely pleasurable God. Um, so, like, like, how do you relay that in a family that we have fallen short by not um, taking pleasure in God? I guess, just taking that from John Piper that perspective, and not sin I guess is
0: how it's yeah that's a good question if you're gonna use the that kind of vernacular which I think isn't acceptable because it's um, we, we are to obviously delight in God um, you can do it in, in ways of um, watch watch for how you and or your, your family or your roommates enjoy Almost everything without thinking about God. Um, that, and, and then draw attention to that. Just say, look how look how much fun we're having with this. Whatever it is you're doing, and just say, oh, you know, it, it, you notice how easy it is to enjoy things without even thought of God. And it shouldn't be that way. So let's bring let's bring God into it. Let's just even thank God for it. Um, we talk about. Um, with our kids of how much fun we had at whatever it was we were doing oftentimes at the end of the day when we're praying or whatever and um, how it was so much fun what we did but that is nothing if we don't have Christ Mm -hmm. and if we enjoy that without Christ and without Christ at the center of it it's what is it? It's meaningless, it's nothing, in fact it even condemns us because we enjoyed it without God Mm -hmm. Um, so you know just One of the things that I've tried to do because I've been influenced by the same kinds of thinking is even from if we're going to eat our favorite pancakes and we're praying before we eat our favorite pancakes is God, we thank you for these good pancakes our favorite pancakes and we don't even want to enjoy them without you without thinking of you It would be so wrong for us to enjoy these without thinking about you Thank you for them or whatever, you know? Uh, just in really simple ways. I don't know. Just an idea. What other thoughts you yeah, have? Tom?
3: Yeah. Uh, the Lord's been kind of talking to me uh, along those lines about, uh, through reading uh, Israel, wandering in the wilderness, and all the groaning and complaining about everything. And he had told them, I'm going to give it to you. I'm The seven nations, he said, I'll drive them out. You don't have to worry about it. I started listening to myself and my family, and I just don't realize how much we grumble and complain about insignificant things, and we don't have to, you know. And I think that's just if you become aware of that, you all of a sudden say, "Whoa! I got What am I doing this for? I don't have to do this as a Christian, you know, because God is uh, through Christ has given us all. So why am I doing this? Well." It's through our unbelief or not focusing on the Lord and, and realizing that. Yeah. So it's really opened my eyes reading about them wandering in the wilderness. And yeah. that's why they lost turn there. That's
1: good. Tom.
4: Yeah, I, I think between Mike and Daniel I, I would kind of answer the question the same way and uh, I I would start with a verse in this first 1 Timothy 1:15 is Paul saying, "This is a trustworthy statement that Jesus Christ came into this world to die for sin, for sinners, which I am chief." I think Mike and, and Daniel both, I, I, looking at my own life, that I'm quick. No, I, I want to be quick to confess sin, and I, I could think that in our kids growing up when I maybe responded harshly or I I was short in how I responded. That's one of my favorite ways to sin is with my tongue. Uh, You know, I can slice you up pretty good without even saying a foul word. You know, it's just all in the delivery. Uh, But being quick to confess to them that it was sinful how I responded and seek their forgiveness. And... And the Daniel answering you, you know, in a practical way, how do I do this this afternoon? Just being quick to to recognize, you know, when the Holy Spirit conviction me that I go clean up my mouth. And because I, you know, I I know for me with with my mouth, you know, I know I could be a horrible example, or I need to bless with my mouth. And I think the quickest way, especially when you're trying to Train up kids it is having them be sensitive to their own sinfulness because they recognize the softness in, in myself or in yourself.
0: That's great. Oh, that is excellent. It's a great way to show that you're under the gospel, <laughs> confessing your sins. David. I
1: try to, because sometimes I'm, I grumble a lot myself, and there's like four or five verses that I meditate on. Um, that where it specifically says in the Bible, this is the will of God, and the theme is like to give thanks. Because he said, you know, to give thanks, and I I'd meditate on some of these verses, like First mm-hmm. Thessalonians four one through six, First Thessalonians five eighteen, Ephesians five seventeen through twenty, Colossians three seventeen, where it's just said, give thanks and all things to God. Because yeah. when you're doing that, then you then you are not grumbling. Yeah, that's it's that's Just to keep your mind. That
2: it's very good.
1: Hey, Eric.
2: It first and foremost uh, starts with us. Um, for example, when we have fantastic sunsets out here, um, work, I get to see those often. And when I look at one of those, when I see the clouds and the colors, do I say pop colors? Or do I recognize God's creation and praise him for it? And one of the things that I've learned is sharing that with my kids to get them to recognize look, don't just look at the cool colors, look at the purples or the green and the oranges and all that stuff God did that and as you start to recognize those things just for yourself and then you're you're able to see more of God's glory in his creation and praise him for it, then you're able to then point that out to your kids and get them to start recognizing that and then just kind of yeah
0: I can remember saying to the kids when they were younger looking at a sunset or something going, wow, I wonder who made that. (laughs) And the kids would go, dad, God made it. Now my kids are all concerned because I don't know that. (laughs) (laughs) So it kind of backfired, but anyway. Let's finish this up. Can we do that? Last two uh, categories. Leading a wife requires a strong (laughs) grasp on the gospel. Anybody here who's not married who doesn't want to be married? Okay, let's move on. Because if we don't have that, we, don't, we need to tackle this here now. Look, guys. Um, what does it say in Ephesians 5 about in regards to the way that you are to love your wife? You are to love your wife as what? As Christ loved the church. That is the gospel. Who loved the church, who gave his life up for her. That's the gospel. So, you are... The prerequisite for you before you ever love a woman, like a wife, is that you must know the gospel. Not intellectually, you must be known by the God of the gospel, changed by the God of the gospel, transformed by the God of the gospel, forgiven. Wrath satisfied, penalty paid, substitute in your place, all of that, new heart, and a student of that gospel so that you know how to what? Love somebody else in a similar way that Christ did that for you. So being a being a husband is a it, it's it requires some serious gospel theology to do that. Um, so you need to have a solid grasp on the gospel, on Jesus, loving the church, so that your love for your wife can be what it's supposed to be. A New Testament model for marriage in category number nine is Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, I'll let you guys read those passages on your own. In verses 1 to 3, they partnered with Paul in the gospel. And later in that chapter, verses 24 to 28, they come across Apollos. And Apollos has a, a, a diminished, deficient view of, of uh, the gospel. They, he only knew of John the Baptist. And so this husband and wife team uh, weren't just partnering with the gospel with, with Paul you know, helping to provide a living through their tent making to help support Paul. But they were also able to help a guy who was deficient in doctrine. And she was right there with him, with her husband, uh, helping equip Apollos. He was sent off, and he was a, a good man uh, for the gospel. In Romans 16, verses 3 to 5 at the end, Paul gives thanks to the many Christians that he knows, and Priscilla and Aquila are one of them. And he says that they risked their necks for the gospel. That was a pretty impressive marriage where a husband and wife risked their necks for the gospel. That's what you want your marriage to be. So, what are we seeing here in all of this? The heart of God in scripture for the household is what? The man of God, we find out, is to place a priority on spiritually influencing his household with his heart for Jesus Christ and the gospel. Can't get past that. There's no room given to you anywhere in scripture to wiggle around that. It's there from the early pages to the last pages. And in the gospel, it is our responsibility to bring a gospel aroma to the family, to set up gospel bars that bar out false thinkings, anti-gospel thinkings that could come in and and, uh, destroy our family. Our home should be a place where God would love to bring the next generation to himself in Christ. Don't you want your family to be that? A place where he would love to work in your family to bring your children to Christ. Now, um, I got a couple things I want to. Now, I'll tell you what we're gonna do. Who else Can I see somebody's book? I need to see the schedule for what we're doing we next time. All right, I'm gonna save my stuff that I have for next time because it'll fit in with the, the household. Um, because uh, I want to talk next time specifically about you single guys who don't have a wife yet and are living maybe with roommates, or you still might even be living at home, whatever, Um, I want to talk to you guys about how valid this second discipline is for you. Because I think it's easy for single guys to go, you ain't talking about me, because I don't have a wife, and I don't have kids. I'm off the hook. I just live with three other schmucks. (laughs) Okay? And if you knew what it was like... Okay, so if you don't want to hear that, don't come next time. Come hear that next time because we're going to talk about um, how important it is for you to take advantage of the uh, relationships that you have in your household now. Let's take a look at your um, assignment for next time. If you'll take the yellow sheet off. What color is your sheet for this time? Uh, Is it green? green? The -the glow-in-the-dark green? All right this yellow let's talk about it this is your your assignment really requires somebody else to uh, help you finish it question number one you're just answering what impact do you think your heart has made on your home lately Positively, you know speaking and negatively speaking um do you see any fruits or consequences from the kind of man that you are in your house and the answer is it's there just you gotta look <laughs> And you'll probably see some things that you, you like. Yeah, I'll tell you something that I see that I don't like. Because I can be impatient with my children. I watch my children being very impatient with each other at times. And I know where they saw that. Um, they didn't have to go outside the house to find that. So be just looking for those kinds of things. And, and just be honest and humble. And we'll pray together. Second question ask someone in your home: wife, child, roommate, frequent guest what they think of your overall influence on the spiritual climate in your home lately. Okay guys, if you're married, I want you to sit and I want you to ask your wife this question. This one right here. What's the overall influence you think I've had on the spiritual climate of this house? Ask your roommates. Ask someone in your home question three um, to comment on the level of spiritual protection that you provide. If you're a solid man, people feel solid they feel safe. If you're all over the place following every wind of doctrine that blows through the open windows, that can be a little unsettling. Ask how they feel. That's off of those Second Timothy three and Titus one passages. Question four: Ask someone in your home to offer suggestions on how you can improve on your spiritual influence in the home for good. What did they offer that you didn't see coming? Guys, this is so important. If you if you'll if you'll humble yourself and you'll do this, and you sit with your wife, you will open or or anybody in your your home. Do, if you got old enough kids, do it with your kids. Do it with your high school age kid, and um, you will open up a door in a for a relationship that maybe hasn't been there that you never thought could be there, but will be there. Because when they see dad or husband um, being humble and saying, "I just I need to." think about these things. I want to think about these things. Can you help me? Oh, my goodness. Everything changes. Question five, have you found yourself playing leapfrog over your household relationships? And if so, why do you think you did that? And then lastly, what tangible changes need to take place on a daily, weekly basis? What should come to an end, and what should come to a start?
1: What if you completely alone?
0: I would find somebody that is probably hanging out at your place the most, that right. knows, that's why I put that, down here, that, frequent guests. was an it? That's it? clue
3: number one.
2: <laughs> wow. I didn't
0: say it, it was just a consensus. Yeah. <laughs> wow. It got really cold in here, didn't it? <laughs> hey, I warned you about my
2: phone. <laughs>
0: And you're right. You didn't even say a bad word. <laughs> All right. What we want to do next is we want to take the rest of our time together, about 45 minutes, and be in our small groups. And you're going to take your yellow or your green sheets, and you're going to just go to your small groups and, and talk about those things. Okay? I'll finish up right at 9 o'clock.